Hey, um, so you have no idea who I am, right? Um, I believe Ricardo called me Eminem, um, <laughs> which is the jokes on him because I'm way more like Fiddy than I am M. But um, <laughs> hey, no. Uh, so my name is Sean. Uh, I'm a pastoral resident at uh, Arcadia. And um, so I, long story short, I was here about two years ago. I, I, I first came here, spent a year here. And then we lived on the, the way north side, my wife and I and our, and our kids, and the drive for services um, was just too long, so we ended up going to Arcadia. Um, so it's, it's nice to be here. I've been there for, for two years. Um, I was supposed to have a picture of myself and my family, um, but I don't. I do love them. I just don't have a picture of them uh, to, to show you guys. Um, so here's what I want to do. I want to tell you guys a little bit about myself so you know where I'm coming from, because I'm, so I'm not just some random dude up here. Um, when I was here two years ago, I had some, like, straight up Jesus hair. It was like down to here, okay? Um, but that's the point. You probably don't remember that, but I did look good. Um, <laughs> okay? Uh, so, so let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I, I was born and raised here in the valley, kind of moved around a lot. Um, my mom and dad growing up um, were both drug addicts. They were both meth addicts. So I, I, I did a lot of moving around as a kid, very transient. And uh, um, at the end of my uh, seventh grade uh, year, uh, my mom, who as a, as a meth addict, she, so it's like weird, because we it wasn't a Christian home, obviously. My mom was like this quasi-Jehovah's Witness, you know? So it was like, Jehovah, thank you for the meth. I don't know how it worked, but... Um, so, so she one day decided to build this, uh, this, this car from the ground up, paint it pink. And if you know meth addicts, they don't mess around. They're setting their mind on something. They're getting that beast done, okay? Um, so she builds this car. I'm done with uh, seventh grade. At the end of seventh grade, she's like, we're going to drive to Texas to see your mom. I'm like... You're a drug addict. You're crazy. Let's do this. Or not see my mom. See my aunt. That just doesn't make any sense at all. My mom said that. Um, so so we, we drive to, uh, to Texas to see uh, my aunt and my, my uh, nephews. And we, the car literally breaks down. We never saw the car again. So there's somewhere on the, the, the 10, this pink Datsun that's sitting there. Um, and so we, we get out there. And long story short, um, we spend the summer there with my aunt and uncle. Now, keep in mind, my, it's not just my, my uh, mom and dad who are, who are drug addicts. My dad is in prison, actually, at the time here in the valley. So it's my mom and my mom's boyfriend um, who are here in this little town called Granbury, Texas. We're there about halfway through the summer. Um, I'd been in, you know, maybe three or four drug busts in my life. But in, in Texas, everything's bigger, right? So you're driving with me on that. So we, we, we're sitting there one day, my brother, my sister, and I, my, my, my cousins and uh, nephews, and we're sitting there, and then just in come the, the SWAT, right? So the SWAT cars, the vans, the, the helicopters, the tanks. Uh, There's no tanks, but it was crazy. So they... <laughs> They, they come in, they take my, myself and my brother and sister, we go to foster care. My mom and my uh, mom's boyfriend go to prison. My mom's boyfriend gets 55 years in prison. Um, so we, my, my brother and sister and I go to foster home. Now, my brother and sister have a different dad than I, um, than I do, like I said. Because um, my dad's here in prison, their dad is in prison for murder. You know what I mean? So it's like, welcome to my family tree. Um, so... So, so here, here's, I'm sitting here, my dad eventually gets out of prison, he comes and gets me out, um, and I come here back to, to the valley to live with him, and he's, he's still a drug addict. I end up going to Shea Middle School, and this is the reason I'm telling this story, because I end up going to Shadow Mountain High School, Shadow, what up, Matadors, anyone? One, yes, two, all right, yeah, Olay, you know what I'm saying, okay, so, so um, at, at the end of my um, freshman year, um, I have a buddy who's, who's actually a Phoenix firefighter right now, at the end of my freshman year, um, he was staying the night during the summer, and uh, we were best friends growing up. And, and uh, his mom and my mom were, were uh, best friends as well. You know, they, they did drugs together, and that usually draws people together. And so they, uh, um, his mom was a Christian, though, okay? Um, and, uh, and, and one night, he's staying the night, and we had just finished beating Twisted Metal, okay? 
Okay, well, anyway, Twisted, younger crowd. Twisted Metal was where it was at, okay? Um, so we, we beat Twisted Metal, and we're sitting there. It's like 3 a.m., never forget this. He's, he's laying there, and he says, hey, man, you think we're going to heaven? And I say, yes, we just beat Twisted Metal. Um, <laughs> no, um, I say, yeah, man, of course. And he begins to unpack what his mom um, told him about the book of Revelation as he would be going to sleep, okay? Now, you've got to understand, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, she's on meth, okay? So it's the book of Revelation on meth. So, she, so he's just telling me this. He's just telling me this. And I'm like, what? Okay? Like horses and scorpions and the moon turn into blood. And he's like, well, I'm glad we're going to heaven. Good night, man. I'm like... Okay, so I don't sleep that night. I'm like, hey, bro, wake up. We're going to church, okay? <laughs> so we, we go, we mi- end up missing this morning service. What we see on their sign, they have this night service. So we go to this night service, and I walk in. It's a church of maybe 20 people, small little church, Faith Covenant Church. We walk in, and there's this 60-plus-year-old lady, long white hair, and she's just going to town. It's a charismatic church. She's, like, screaming. Her name was Grace. We called her Grace in Your Face. And people sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes people would stand up and start waving a flag. No joke. We were, they were getting, and I was like, this is a lot like home, okay? Um, so it was great. So, so we're sitting there just like, and we sit in the back. This is, this is wild because we sat in the back and made fun of the whole service. I'm not kidding. We sat there and laughed our whole way through. And I don't know what happened, man. I, I really honestly don't. But sitting in the back at the, at the end, I find myself up front talking to this lady named Grace. And, and that night, God calls my name. I give my life to Jesus Christ, which is crazy, super crazy, because just the atmosphere that, that God really called me in, um, and I, you know, it's funny, because Eric ended up giving his life to Christ after he read the Left Behind series, of all things. Um, I know, right? It's like, you knew the book of Revelation. Anyway, um, so, so, so here's the deal. I, I end up uh, getting saved, go through high school. I end up meeting my then future wife, um, and that church ends up closing down. I become a pastor at, a, at another church um, in Scottsdale, and, uh, and I was there, and God started to put on my heart um, this idea of church planning. And that's not, a, that's not a lot of the language. I think in redemption, we're kind of used to that language. That's not language um, in the charismatic world that they would use, at least at the time they weren't using it. Um, and uh, so, so on Sunday nights, uh, myself and my buddies and, and Candace, my wife, um, we would, she wasn't my wife then, but we would sneak over on Sunday nights to this church called Praxis. Um, and so we would be going to this church called Praxis, and I end up meeting with this guy named Justin Anderson. And so we start talking with him, and he's like, listen, come, come, ch- come chat with me. Come, come hang out with us. We'll get you planted, and we go through this whole process. And so we make our way to redemption. This is about three years ago, um, and I, that's when I spent the year here and then end up too years later at Arcadia, and now we just moved to 75th Avenue and Cactus because um, we believe God has still called us to, to, to plant a church. Um, so we moved out there, and our goal is with the hopes of starting communities to, to eventually plant a, a congregation in the Peoria area. And so we're really excited. That's something that you can, you can pray for us about. Um, we're really jazzed to do that, and I'm, I'm really excited um, to be here with you guys today. I, I told Ricardo that, um, that uh, or he told me to tell you guys that things are really awesome. If you don't know, he's at the, the youth camp there, and so he said things are going really, really well. Um, God's doing some cool stuff, so I'm sure he'll tell you about it next week. So here's what I need you to do. Um, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible, if you can slip your hand up real quickly, um, there's some guys coming down the aisles. They'll hand you one. Now, when you raise your hand, no, you're saying, I didn't bring a Bible to church. Find me. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh-huh. Sinners. Here we go. Um, welcome. Welcome to Redemption Church. I'll just... Hey, um, so, so here's what I want to do. Um, we have been in the book of Romans at Redemption for the past um, about 10 and a half years, and we have been going through 
the book of Romans, and we stopped during the, Christ, the Christmas uh, uh, season. We picked it back up in Romans chapter 8 about a month ago. And, um, and, and here's what I want to do. The difference between Romans uh, 7 and 8, it kind of took this turn. And Romans chapter 7 is very law, condemnation, sin. As we take this turn into Romans chapter 8, it's very much about the Spirit of God and, and what he's doing. And that's important because um, we've gone through 17 verses so far in, um, in the book of, uh, or chapter 8 in, in Romans. And there are actually 17 references to the Spirit. Literally, uh, uh, the reference to the Spirit almost every verse, okay? Now, um, I say that because a couple weeks ago I, I had to preach on a passage, and I want to I kind of catch us up to where we are, because maybe you've missed the last couple weeks in, in, in chapter 8, and so here's where we are, and I'm going to say it the same way I did a couple weeks at Arcadia, and, and, and let's start with this. As you pick up your Bible and you read it, you'll understand right away there is this trump truth that, that um, conquers all things, okay? There is this thing that when it takes place, things will never be the same again, okay? And that truth that truth that, that just cascades itself across the pages of the Bible is the fact that every single time the Spirit of God comes on the scene, things are never the same again. Never the same again, okay? So you have, before anything is everything, God takes that and he says, listen, here it is, here's the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And now what was nothing comes into existence. Suddenly uh, there's fashioning of trees, suddenly there's stars in the sky, and then, so you have it, God makes man. And what happens in Genesis 2, again, the spirit comes on the scene and things are never the same because God breathes into man. And that idea of breathe, let's not get it get twisted what really happens here. The same idea in Greek for breathe, the same word for breathe or wind is spirit, okay? And that's important because God breathes into man. He gives him a spirit as an image bearer of God, and now the spirit is in him. And let's, listen, what was once a lump of clay, a, a pile of dirt, God has made into something. When the spirit comes on the scene, things are never the same. There, this is, he is Mordecai's courage. He is Samson's strength. He is marching around Jericho. Things are never the same. We were even told Jesus is dead in the grave and the Spirit of God comes and he raises to life. When the Spirit comes on the scene, things are never the same. And that is so important because as we hit the, the, the text that Ricardo unpacked last week, and I, I got a lot of uh, a mess to clean up with what he did with it, um, well, as, as, as we, we get to that, he kind of begins to unpack this idea and it's the Spirit within us. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. If when the Spirit comes on the scene, things are never the same, and the Spirit is in you, then should we not be changing? Should we not never be the same? Like, like, shouldn't something be happening within us? And one of the things that is happening is this, that the Spirit, in verse 16, of, we're recapping, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And it's important because if we're children, the Spirit's doing this within us, the Christians, the Spirit's doing this within us. If we are children, then it says this, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So one of the things that the Spirit changes us in the direction of is saying, listen to me. The same way that God the Father looks down on his son and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. If you are an heir because of the blood of Christ, because you're a child of God, then God looks down on you the same way. That you are loved by God the Father the way God the Father loves his son. Now this changes us. This does something within us. Now what, what it does within us um, is, 
unbelievable when, he, when we begin to talk about adopted sons and, and what that looks like walking around. But th- there is this, um, um, there's this kind of clause right at the end of verse 17 where it says, um, basically assuming. He uses the word providing. It's like, hey, you can stay here assuming you pay the bills, provided you pay the bills. And so, so it, we, we look at this, and as we read in verse 17, and children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then he says this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he's going to say, and believe, because the spirit of, of, of God is in you, that one day you will stand before him in glory. That's a reality. But to know it's true, know you are going to suffer. And, and the trick in this is, 17 is very specific to, to persecution. I think on top of everything else. And it begins to, to um, uh, open itself up as we get through, through our section today. Um, I want to read a quote, and it seems like it's left field, um, but I wouldn't be a good reform teacher if I didn't quote John Piper when talking about suffering. And so I want to um, read a quote real quick from John Piper. This is what it says. Um, all suffering, I'll read it from, from mine. All suffering of every kind that we endure in the path of our Christian calling is a suffering with Christ and for Christ, with him in the sense that suffering comes to us as we are walking by faith, and for him in the sense that suffering proves our allegiance. So this is what he's saying. Um, There's a suffering specific to Christians, but on top of this undertone of that the world is broken. So let me me unpack it by saying this, um, because it's going to take a a story form for us to really get at what we're trying to to do here this morning. Um, In our story, when the Spirit's doing everything, before there was anything, you have to understand what was there, or who was there. Um, Here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony. Now, a lot of you know this story, okay, but the implications of this is, is pretty simple. God has made the world in such a way that whatever brings him glory, the thing that is bringing him glory finds its most joy. Like, the thing that is bringing it glory, the person that is bringing him glory finds joy so much so that their joy can be considered complete. So here is God giving glory to Christ, Christ giving glory to the Father. Now listen, he then in this moment begins to create and it doesn't stop. So when he creates the forest, when he creates the stars, when he creates these things, over and over, these things were made to bring him glory. And guess what? He makes man, and the declaration, the rule of the universe, still applies. To simply say, your joy, son, your joy, daughter, will be complete if you give me glory. As long as you give me glory, everything you are looking for will be found. Now, unfortunately, for the shortness of our story because of time, man chooses not God. He tries to find joy, he tries to find happiness in something else. And suddenly, the whole equilibrium of the universe is off kilter simply because you were made to find joy in bringing God glory. You were not made to find your identity in this or this but him. And when you try to find your identity in anything else, your joy is not complete. And it is all because, which Greek mythology would use this idea of like Pandora's box, but it is all because in that moment when this man and this woman, our great-great-grandfather and grandmother, left us this gift of uh, the moment they chose to find joy in something that wasn't God, their joy is no longer complete and sin enters the world. And you, you know the gift that they leave us in that moment when sin enters the world is, is, is very simple. Hear me when I say this. All will suffer from this moment on, and all will die. That is a truth. That is a reality. All will suffer, and all will die. No matter how much Dr. Oz you get down on, how much gluten you avoid, all will suffer. 
all will die. Again, welcome to Redemption Church. <laughs> this, is, this is important. Now, now, now hear me. For, for you, if, if you're in here and you're not a believer and you're not a Christian, you're still trying to figure this whole thing out. Man, part of this should be good news for you because you know this to be a reality. You've experienced the weight of loss. And, and for the first time, a good-looking gentleman is standing on the stage, and he's telling you that, that, that it's not just a reality in which you, you walk in, but, but there's a reason for that. And, and, and the pains are, are, are valid, man. Like, like, hear me, like, losing your mom to cancer, let, let's be straight, that sucks. That's, that's a brokenness. Like your boyfriend breaking your heart, your girl, you trying to find identity in a girl, whatever it is, you being down and out when it comes to financial income, whatever it is, there is a suffering that is taking place. And hear me, all will suffer and all will die. That is a reality of life. Now, fortunately for the Christians, the story doesn't end there because the God who made the world the way it is, the God who fastened everything, who put all these things together and said, as long as you find um, uh, glory, as long as you give me glory, you will find joy. He then stops everything, enters into that suffering and enters into that death. The same God who provided all these things now enters into suffering and he enters into death and we are told in 17 that we suffer with him this is a joy now what used to cause pain now what used to cause turmoil now what used to cause confusion suddenly is bringing us peace like losing my mom if she's a believer in jesus christ she wins like i'm here with you but she has galaxies for, for like a crown. Like what? She wins. All of a sudden, like it's different. It's better. Everything that I want and desire isn't on this side of glory. So there is something different going on as he enters into suffering, as he, as he enters into death, which rolls it perfectly into this um, next verse in 18. Because what 17 tells us, it's, it's basically a promise. If you plan on seeing Jesus Christ someday, if there's something within you, you've given your heart to Jesus Christ and you plan on seeing him one day, and you plan on looking at his face in glory, then plan on suffering. And you know what 18 says? 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he literally says, if, if you plan on seeing Jesus Christ someday, plan on suffering, but you want to know what's going to get you through the suffering? The fact that you plan on seeing Jesus Christ someday. So it's not like, I, I get this or get that. It's, it's that you get him. That one day you get him. And, and he, he proves this, right? Like, I consider, like, he reckons. He counts it to be so. Like, in his calculations, I know this is going to be, and every suffering, every pain, every heartache that I experience in this life, it's not even worth comparing to what I'm going to see. Tolkien would literally say that every um, sad thing would come untrue. Un untrue. And, and it's all around us. Like, it, it's taking place. And you're going to suffer. You're going to die. It's a matter of putting our hope in the right place. And I, I want you to know, as, as we hit this text, this is not some, like, um, you know, sometimes I would get frustrated with, um, with, with pastors who aren't, like, aren't living in reality. 
when I was first saved, like, they would say things, I'm like, but that's just not reality. Right? Like, what you're describing is like, oh, just, just give it to Jesus. Just push into the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I don't know what that means, bro. Like, what do you want me to do right now? And there would be kind of these one-off statements. This is not Paul saying this. This is not an ethereal, I, I know. Those first two words are unbelievably important that the guy says this. And I love that Paul says this when he says, for I. Usually the dude uses the pronoun us or we, but in this moment, for I. Me, Paul, I. And so if you don't even know where, where this cat's coming from, let me explain. In 2 Corinthians um, chapter 11, um, he begins to try to really lay out like why he is um, to be listened to, why he's to be heard, because there's other, you know, quote-unquote apostles that are kind of um, vying for attention. So this is what he says in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? In chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Am I talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, far, uh, with countless beatings, and often near death? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart, from, um, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So this is real to him. This is not an ethereal, yeah, I know there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for Paul. No, I've been through it. I've experienced it. I know what it feels like to be hungry. I know what it feels like to be beaten. I know what it feels like to, to feel like you're going to die and want to die. I know what that feels like. This is real talk from a real man who really lived. And as Paul ends his journey, he writes this book in 2 Timothy. He writes this, and, and, and the knife is about to find his neck. And he then um, makes this declaration in 2 Timothy I'll read it from here if you have it. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 6. This is what he says um, on his way to, to, to finish his life. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. Now, leave that up here, because this is really important, what, what takes place in this section of verses. It would be very easy for us, and maybe some of us have done this, that we know when, when, when uh, push comes to shove, and everything is done, and time has ceased, and, and we enter into heaven, there's going to be this mansion, and the Bible would use this idea of crowns and rubies, like there's going to be there, and that is what's going to be better. But that is not what Paul is saying here, because all of those things are taking place. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. But, but listen to what he's saying which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. So waiting on that side is not things. It's not just things, but you know who's waiting on that side is the very one that longs deeply within your heart. You will look at him, you will see him, and everything else Paul says I've gone through, that's the reason I consider suffering not even worthy to count as comparing to this. That I will see him on that day, who's going to award these things to me? He is. This righteous judge. And man, it's good. It, it, 
These things are good. Don't, don't get, imagine you're super thirsty, like unbelievably thirsty, dying of dehydration. Someone hands you a bottle of water and you drink that bottle of water. And drinking that bottle of water is better than not having the bottle of water. But what if when you drank that bottle of water, it did not satisfy the thirst? So you drank and you drank and you drank, and, and though it was better than, than what not having water, it didn't satisfy anything. This is the same way. You can go to heaven and everything, every pain can be undone, but without that longing, without Ecclesiastes 3.11, absolutely seeing it, that eternity is stored up within our hearts, and we see now that hole that's within us being satisfied. Without that taking place, it's pointless, man. It's pointless. And, and I hope our heart longs for that. My, my son, um, he's six years old, six, four, and, and, and uh, we have a daughter, Eve, who's one. Corbin is six. Um, he's really into this game called Minecraft. Word up, anybody? Okay. Um, and he's, play, he's playing Minecraft. And here's the thing he always tells me. And, and this, like, this is one of those, like, oh, man, gosh, I'm going to miss this. He, um, he wants to play Minecraft, and every day, um, he knows he gets 30 minutes to play it. Every single day, he gets his 30 minutes, and he waits till I come home so he can play with me. Um, so I could play with him. And he says, and I said, why don't you, you, you had some time earlier to play. And he says, I want, it's fun to play, but I really like playing with you. And so for him, playing Minecraft is fun. It's great. But he would rather get his controller, snuggle up next to me, and I'll freaking build a huge tower. And he'll build a little shack. And I'll be like, see how I'm better than you. <laughs> okay? Now this is the truth as we, 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 we enter in. Because we can get lost and to think that we're just talking about suffering this morning, that this passage is focusing on suffering, but it's not. We will talk about suffering. The, the point of this passage um, is simple. Your pain is real. It's valid. It's, it's there. It's honest. But the reality of what is to come is even more real. That that longing within you. And so um, let's go back to our text and, and do this. This is what Paul's going to do. He's going to take creation. He's going to put creation in the realm of what it looks like that creation now is broken. He's going to personify creation. And then he's going to do something really wild with this. And so um, let's read it. Um, we're in Romans chapter 8 still. We're going to pick it up now in, um, in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Just stop. I know he got real far there. Um, okay? Um, so here, here's the first thing we can know. We're going to grab these things from creation and see what Paul's saying about creation. And the first thing is this, that it's eagerly longing. That creation right now is waiting for something. And what it's waiting for, just some theology 101, the sons of God to be revealed. And this is another way we would, we would wholeheartedly believe that once all the children of God, all the sons of God are revealed unto creation, that the time has been fulfilled and Jesus Christ will come back. Okay, the reason that's important is because creation is waiting for this day. Creation is waiting for the return of Christ. Creation is waiting for the end. And the immediate question we have to ask is, why is creation waiting? So he continues on. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So, so here's why creation is waiting. Creation is waiting is because every single day, um, the same rhythm that takes place goes on and on and on and on. So tomorrow, in the African savanna, grass will grow, the deer will eat the grass, the lion will eat the deer, the honey badger will eat the lion, okay? And, and, and this will take place going on over and over and over again. And no matter how hard Simba tries to contemplate, he cannot get his idea, he cannot grasp the fact, he cannot get beyond that the circle of life is a circle. And it goes around and around and around. And it is subjected to futility, literally vanity. 
It is, it is pointless. God uses it for his purpose. God uses it for his glory. But in the end, the lion is not doing anything special that it didn't do yesterday. It is subjected to futility. The rivers will run. The rain will come over and over and over again. And it longs. It waits eagerly to be set free from this. So continuing in verse 20. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, hear this, in hope. So if literally, we're told in, in, um, in Genesis chapter 3 that the very ground that we walk on um, is cursed. So if this is taking place, it's subjected. God curses man, curses uh, woman, he curses the ground, and now we're subjected to futility. So here creation goes on and on and on, but, but there's a caveat there. It's subjected in hope. It's subjected in hope, and, and, and here's the hope. In hope, that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's that children of God, the glory of the children of God. So creation, hear this, let's recap what, what's happening within creation because this is important for where we're going. Um, creation is longing for a, a day because it's subjected to futility, to vanity, just pointlessness over and over. It's subjected to this. Okay? And it can't wait for this longing, and, and it's waiting because it knows another day is coming because it's been subjected in hope that one day there will be no more corruption. There will be no more bondage. That literally that lion will lay with the lamb. That everything that's taking place, there is a, a hope there, and God puts it. And it's not this, don't think of hope in, in the wrong way. I would use like the word plans. This is what this word's trying to conjure up here. Like the same way a basketball player, well, our hope is to win the game. It's, it's not as like, well, I hope if it happens, it happens. God very intentionally is saying, I put this here in hope that it is going to take place. Okay? Now, all this is important, right? Creation, this is, this is a great section of verses for us to really kind of understand as we, we, you know, we look at the honey badger. But what, what's taking place now is, or what's going to take place in this next verse is even more important. And this is what it says. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. It's going to go on, and I'll explain it in a second, but, but this is important. So it's not just creation that is subjected to futility. It's not just creation that is subjected to bondage or, or vanity. It's not just subjected to pointlessness. Listen to me. You, me, we have been subjected in hope. Now, to the unbeliever here, um, if you're not a Christian, let, let me say this very importantly. Have you not felt the weight of this? Like, have you not felt the weight of, of the meaninglessness like trying to find your identity in a social class or a social cause. Have you, like, to know the weight of, like, making your boyfriend or your girlfriend a god, to making your husband or your wife or your children a god. Have you not felt the weight of this, that over and over again you, you try, but it's pointless, it's, it's vanity. You, what are you going to do with it? He, he says, even as he continues on, um, because I, I would say this um, very importantly about um, the person who brought you who's a Christian or, or maybe even um, the, the guy you know is a Christian and you just came here on your own, they, they deal with the same things that, that you do. Like, is that Titanic? Did I? <laughs> and I think it's a guy, so that's, okay. Um, no judging, bro. We're saved by grace. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um. How do we recover from that? Um, yeah, um, so, so, so he, here, here's what I'm going to say to the unbeliever. 
Um, no one knows the, the weight of this. If you were to pick up your Bibles and, and go into the Old Testament, there's this dude named Solomon who was the wisest guy in the world, like literally ever and will ever be. He had more knowledge than he knew what to do with. We think that we find our identity or, or we're something special because we plant a garden. This guy literally planted forests. Okay? Like we look at women and long for them in this way or look at a man long. He had all the women he could want. He had so much money because some of us get so tied up in thinking this is going to bring us happiness. But this man, Solomon, had so much money that he made silver as common as stones. Like rocks on the ground, there's some silver. That's how much money this guy had. He had anything anybody could ever want, and he has a pithy little book in the middle of our Bible that simply says, and you know what I found out? It's all pointless. It's all vanity. But here we strive trying to find our identity in, in this or our identity in that, and he's saying, I've been there, bro. I've tried that, and hear me when I say this. It doesn't work. That hole within you that's churning is not satisfied. And it's so important because the next part, the second half of this verse, um, which says, uh, where am I at? Uh, for creation, we're subject to the field. We're way longer than that. Um, where, where am I at? Um, oh, not only creation, but ourselves. I'm sorry. Um, and it continues on with this. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Pastor Ricardo unpacked the adoption of sons perfectly last week, so we don't need to spend some time on that. So here's what, what I'm going to say. There is, the same way creation is longing, the same way creation is groaning, something is happening within you. So Christian, hear me, because a lot of people have left the faith because this idea um, that what's happening within you, that you know you, God has spoken to you, right? Like, I know that sounds weird, but God has spoken to, to your heart. He has done something within you, and you long for something better. Not on this side of glory, but you know when you pass, there is something better. You read your word, and it gives you faith, and it conjures up this idea, God, I know you're there, and you're groaning. But the same as creation, you're subjected to futility, and you wait eagerly for this day, and you long eagerly for this day. Hear me, Christian, this is the point where I'm trying to get across. That's the only thing that's going to get you through your suffering, man. That's it. No promise of, of, of getting the lights turned back on if you struggle with money. No promise of your mom or dad being raised from the dead. Hear me, the only thing that's going to get you through this thing is that one day you will see him. That is a reality. And because people before us have seen the world that they live in and, and feel what they feel in their heart and that these two are a dichotomy and they, they, they don't match up, they leave the faith because they just don't understand why and what I feel and what I read and what the Word tells me and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to me, why is it so different than the world I walk in? And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's true. It's coming. The day is coming. And the Spirit eagerly it longs it groans within us have we not felt the weight of that he continues he says this in verse 25 for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees this is really important because this first part um for me this first part this hope the hope the same hope um that i'm looking at um I would say to you Christians in this room right now, um, do, you, do you forget that day that God called you, man? Do you forget what that looked like? Do, do I forget sometimes that day walking into a small church and, and watching this lady 
just scream, man, and, 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 and hearing her and then giving my life to, to Jesus Christ. And I got a quarter-mile walk home, and I'm telling you, I've taken thousands of showers in my life up to that point, but I never felt clean on the inside. There was something different as a high school student contemplating what's going to take place. Even if it was through the, 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 the avenue of fear in the book of Revelation, I know suddenly where I felt hopeless and helpless. Now there's something in front of me that this man died for me, and that hope did something. And he's saying to us, the same hope that saved you is the same hope that's going to get you through this thing. That same hope. Remember that hope. It's so close to in Revelations 2 where it says he's, he's chastising a church because they've forgotten their first love. For some of us, this love of Jesus Christ, we, we've let it grow callous. And this is why we wonder, and this is why we doubt, and we let our, our flesh take over. And now I'm not going to read, how much do I really believe? How much do I really, uh, it's not, okay. And it's building, and it's building, and we have forgotten who our first love is. We have forgotten what our first hope was. You've forgotten that, that you have something that maybe for you, the person next to you doesn't have. It's real. That one day you really will see him. And, and if it because this is the trick. Paul, this last section, he's, he's, he's telling us, I'm asking you, brother, I'm asking you, sister, to see God when you can't see him. That's what makes it hope. Even though you can't see him, I challenge you to see him. Um, let, me, let me start wrapping up w- with this. I don't think there's any better picture that we can find um, this than, than in Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> and if you've been in church a while, you know what Hebrews chapter 11 um, says. It basically is this long section uh, verse after verse after verse about men and women living by faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. And, and so over and over and over we see um, David conquering giants. We see Samson just killing everyone. Um, we see people, Gideon, Caleb, um, David. It just goes on and on and on, right? Um, and so it goes through all these things. And we read this section of verse and we say, see, they live by faith. And God bought, brought them through this beast. Like he, got, he did something. And then we get to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, and and we don't read that last section as we should. Because though things are great, and you can ask for your best life now, um, though things are great, sometimes they're not. And though sometimes God does come through, and, 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 and he does this for his own purpose, sometimes he intentionally doesn't. So as we get to, to Hebrews, um, Chapter 11, I, w- I want to read the last section. This is what it says, um, picking it up in verse 32. After talking about all these p- people, he, he begins to, to recap in verse 32, and this is what he says. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, uh, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. How good is God? How good is God that he came through for all these men? He is so good. It's not the same for everyone, though, is it? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So some didn't have it like that, homie. Some didn't get that. Some didn't see their promise on this side of glory. So, so for them, what do we say? What do they have? It's simple. He goes on in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. <laughs> like, do we just read that? Do we just seriously just read that? He said, this is, what is, this is how it is. And they didn't receive what was promised. They didn't get it. Talk about a letdown. A man told that he's going to pave the way for the Messiah to come. He gives his life to God, God alone. He lives in the desert. He doesn't marry anyone. He has no friends. He spends his life over and over being persecuted by the Jews. He's a cousin of the Messiah. And then suddenly, hey, Jesus is here. I paved the way for him. He simply says, John the Baptist is the best man born among women. So here's John. Man, this is awesome. And you know what his reward was? To be beheaded by a harlot's king. That was his reward. What do we tell this man? He didn't receive the promise on this side of glory. What? What gets them through this? And he continues, verse 40, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So they waited for us, bringing something better. And you know what that something better is in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the people we just talked about, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Those next three words change our life. Looking to Jesus. That's all you got, man. The trump card in your pocket is simply, I, I, I don't know what to do. The pain is so much I can't breathe right now. What do I do in this moment? All I have is Jesus. So, so from pain that is vast when it comes to death and real deep hardship to, to simple things that we would even consider trite, right? Like because um, uh, you didn't make the team or because of this or because of these little things, man, it's all this all-inclusive suffering and the only thing that's going to get you through it is I don't see this, I don't believe this because I'm looking to Jesus and he is the author and finisher of my faith. That's the point of the passage in Romans 8. That's what gets us through it, man. I want to close with a story, and then we'll get out of here. Um, in 1871, <clears throat> uh, there was the Great Chicago Fire, um, and, and maybe some of you have heard this story, but I think it, it's perfect for us to kind of understand. Um, and there's a guy named Horatio Gates Spafford who um, owned an insane amount of real estate in, in uh, Chicago at the time. And so when the city begins to burn down, the dude loses everything, okay? Well, keep in mind, he has four daughters and a son, um, and I should say had a son because he had lost his son a year earlier to scarlet fever, his youngest son. So here, after losing his son a year later, loses all of his real estate. Himself, his wife, and his four daughters have nothing. Okay? And so they don't know what to do. They don't know how to get through this. So there's a buddy of his named D.L. Moody. You may have heard his name. And he, he comes in and says, listen, meet me in London. Help me do some work out here. And for the Spaffords, this is just huge because they just want to get out of Dodge, right? They, they don't want anything to do with what's going on there. Um, they know it's going to take a lot of time to kind of build up what has taken place. And so um, they basically buy a boat tickets, plural. They get, they get on this um, boat and go. But, but, but before they get on, there's a call, right? There's this telegram that comes in, and, and he's explaining to Horatio, hey, listen, there's some zoning issues that you've got to come take care of because of the fire. Now, 
His daughters and his wife are just ridiculously disappointed that they have to stay here. So as a good husband and father, he says, listen, get on the boat, go there, get out of here. Um, I'll take care of this and I'll be out there in a week. I'll get on a boat and, and I'll meet you out there, okay? A couple days goes by, his ratio is still in Chicago and he receives a telegram and it says, it says these famous words, saved alone, sent by his wife. Um, come to find out, that while they were on their way to London, another ship ran into their ship. And though the mom clung tightly to these daughters, they all drowned and died. So now Horatio, in a short period of time, has lost his son to a disease which he has no control over. He lost his four daughters because of a ship he has no control over. He loses all of his money, which he has no control over. And he's sitting there and he doesn't know what to do. So like a good husband, he gets on the ship and he begins to head over to console his wife. And on their way over there, everyone knows that this had just taken place. Um, and so they stop where, uh, the ship stops right where the accident happened. And they, they take this time to kind of reflect on what was going on. And the captain calls up Horatio. And he says, sir, this is the spot that your daughters died. And, and Horatio um, listens to the captain. And, and you, you got you to be in this moment, man. Like, what do you do? Like, what do you do in these moments when you can't breathe? Like, like, like everything's been taken from you. This is more than just modern-day Job. Everything's been taken from you. It's, what do you do? So he gets a pen, he gets a paper, and he goes back to his room, and he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. <laughs> like I've been in those rooms where the stillborn is, is, is delivered. I don't know what to tell the mom. But I'm telling you what she's not thinking. It is well with my soul. You know the last um, section, because this what he wrote was eventually obviously turned into this famous hymn. This last section that was written, he wrote this. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be a sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. That the, the man Jesus Christ is not pointing down a direction and say, go son, go daughter, but he's asking us to follow. And he's asking us to follow and nothing more than what he himself went through. And you know what that motivation was? What got him through that? The same thing he's asking us to do. He was looking at us. The joy that was set before him. The same way he says, look at me. Keep my eyes on me. My daughter's just learning to walk. Come on, boy. Come on. Come on, baby. You got, you got it. Keep, keep your eyes on me. There is this. Keep your eyes on him. He died for you. And that's the only thing. That's the only thing. No prosperity gospel. No promise of riches now. No victory chance will get you through it. It is the fact that one day you believe you will stare at the very person your heart has been longing for all this time. May it be true in our hearts. May it be true in our actions. May we live a life worthy of him. May we love him well. May we trust him in our times of sorrow. Let me pray for you.